0: join me in the, in the book of John. and let's look at the, the chapter chapters that involve the final night, the final evening. It is my intention to move in this final session with you brothers. Through these last if you if you can believe I'm going to do this, six chapters of John, without keeping you here all day. Just a few highlights. And i got to tell you, I, I, in a way I feel like I have failed to really, uh, typically the emphasis that I, you know, the Lord led in a different way, but typically um, these men's events, the focus is so completely on Christ. I'm so, I'm so in awe of him that I just, I want to make up for it this morning. Chapter 12, verse 1. There's a number of times we're here as John writes, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says things that it, he just expresses his awe. In this so decades after the events, he, he he writes and goes, and he knowing everything that was going to happen to him, it's stuff like that. Look at this anyway, John chapter twelve. And Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead to whom he raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was as one of them that sat at the table with him. And then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointments, the second lady to do this. And still, I wish there had been a man falling down at the Lord's feet, Washing with his tears. Wiping with his beard. That would be a cooler story. But God has made women. With a great capacity. For love. Made for love. Lazarus was raised from the dead. And he's not down there. Pouring out any ointment. Verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples. Judas Iscariot Simon's son. Which should betray him. Why? Why? was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor, That's like a year's wages. And that actually sounded good. That actually sounded like a a, a responsible and, and very generous, caring thought, which is the common practice of the liberal politician. They act wow. like they are more concerned about the poor than anybody else. Yeah. called it a waste, saw it as a waste. Verse 6, John's commentary here. <clears throat> this he said, not that he cared for the poor, <clears throat> but because he was a thief and had the bag and he bare what was put there. So John says, uh, you know, Judas said this, but he didn't care about the poor. He was all about Judas. He was the treasurer and he was ripping off the whole ministry. Which is an amazing thing. It's not like the Lord doesn't know that. Right? You ever thought about that? How gracious of the Lord to trust Judas? I, I strongly believe that John and the others didn't discover the theft until after Judas killed himself. In fact, at the last supper, when, when, the, when the Lord said, one of you going to betray me, they didn't all go, yeah, and we know who too, An all point. In fact, he was the last one they suspected. They were all going, come on, tell me it ain't me. And then said Jesus, you let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. What a statement. What a, what a bucket of ice thrown on a room full of people. Because you understand that you leave her alone. Jesus preparing me for my burial. For my burial. For the poor you have always. The poor always you have with you. But me you, you not have always. That, that was information to them. That he's about to leave. They have no idea. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus sake only. But. They might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. Can you Imagine that one, what a circus it was outside. Everybody wants to get a look at the guy who was dead and was dead for four days. But the chief priest, they consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. <laughs> Amazing. They want to undo the resurrection of Lazarus they got a firm conviction that when someone dies, they ought to stay there, apparently. They're committed. It's against nature to be bringing people back. Right? What kind of stupid argument? What kind of theology? Can you imagine uh, among them as they talked about this? No, we're going to kill him. He needs to die. It was the power. Only the power of God could raise someone from the dead. How insane must you be to not recognize that God, only God could raise the dead. Now he needs to go back to being dead. It was because, verse 11, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is The king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. No. But he saw that prophecy was being fulfilled while it was being fulfilled. It was all prophesied, and it was after it happened to the old man. Wait a minute, what a moment. What, what a series of moments of, for those men. They had lived it and witnessed it and didn't recognize that it. it was all the the predetermined foreknowledge of God. Yeah. You you guys picture that. Can you do you have a good mental picture of the Lord? A grown man. Riding on a donkey's colt. Donkey's an awkward enough little animal, disproportionately large head, little body, and you got a colt, a young one. It's a grown man. His feet, no doubt, are touching the ground. His sandals are being drugged in the sand. It is such a statement. It is so not macho. It's, just, you know, we're men. Do we not have a tendency to identify ourselves by what we ride? <laughs> And the guy, instead of coming in, in something big and jacked up, right? So he didn't have, he didn't have, you know, Ford, Super Duty, Power Stroke. He he he, he, he could have picked a majestic looking horse, a war horse. But see, that's for later. See, that, that will happen, but that's not now. That's, that's the next advent. This one, he deliberately comes riding in on a moped. <laughs> he deliberately, on purpose, comes in and going, and it is so not intimidating. It is a statement of meekness. You can't get any meeker. A grown man on a donkey's cult. It's not a statement of might or intimidation. Think about that Think about it. And that's how he chose to come in and fulfilling prophecy. Verse 17, the people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, they bear record. For this cause the people also met him for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how you prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. <laughs> it's just... Bunch of jealous little high school girls. (laughs) Somebody else is prettier. Unbelievable. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, it's an interesting thing to note that when you read through all four Gospels, Andrew's only mentioned a few times. That's Peter's brother. He's only mentioned a few times, but every single time Andrew's mentioned, he's doing the exact same thing. That's what he's doing right here. He's making a connection. He, he's talking about the priestly role, representing God to man and man to God. Andrew is, every time he comes up, he's like bringing his brother Peter. You've got to meet him, you've got to meet this Messiah. He's bringing a kid with a lunch going. Here's a kid. He's got five loaves and a couple of fish. What well, can you do that? He's like, he always sees the potential. that can just connect them to the Lord. That's inspiring. Verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Really, really, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. <laughs> Amazing that he would recognize his mortal body as a seed that needs to be planted. He that loveth his life shall, lo- shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it until life eternal. That um, profound statement from the Son of God. Try to hang on to your life, it'll slip away. You can't hang on. If you let go of it, that's when you find it. And if you're a Christian, you've had that moment. If you've never had that moment of surrender, you need to have it today. You need to have it this morning. This morning, you need to lose your life because that's the only way you're going to find it. Try to hang on to it. Try to hang on to your big plans and your ambitions. It'll all slip away from you. So that famous statement inspired by those words, the missionaries, that said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If any man serve me, verse 26, then follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. This is the manliest statement right here. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And that is that not the ultimate hero? Is that not manly? And he's coming up against the horror, guys. He's coming up against the frightening horror of the cross. He's coming up. On, on this event, it's not just this, the agony of his physical death. It's the experiencing of the shame, the absorption of our guilt. A big transfer that's going to take place. I can't even comprehend. He is not like some man on the edge of a pool dipping his toe in the water. I was thinking about that walking by that pool this morning. Snow all around the edge. You'll dip your toe in there or you'll never go in. No, he's like a man. In Gethsemane, a man sort of shrinking back, he's more like a man who has stuck his toe in the lava that he knows he has to jump into. The uh, the, the immersion into the sewage, all of that combined, raw, untreated sewage that we have all contributed to, and he would be baptized in it, absorbing it. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You, guys, you think that's what I'm going to say? I don't think so. He goes, He goes no. This is what I came here for. Father, glorify thy name. Verse 28. Then came a voice from heaven. This is, this is a rare thing, this voice from heaven. This is the voice of the Lord God that walked with our parents in Eden. In the cool of the day. And he isn't heard much on earth. There's only a few occasions where God breaks in. It's like all the occasions where the voice of God is heard as a voice. Pretty frightening. But most of them have to, no, all of them have to do with his son. It's like at the baptism of the Lord, where he rips the sky open and just goes, this is him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. (laughs) That announcement sent a shockwave all through hell, through every, all through the universe, every devil, every fallen angel went, what, and Satan himself, this is him? The very, very devil that thought he had forded the plan of God when he inspired Herod to have all the babies murdered in Bethlehem. Huh? And that kid's going off the radar. He's down in Egypt carried by a mere mortal to Egypt, having been warned by an angel. He's back in the land and lives three decades without any devil recognizing him. He can go anywhere in public and there's no demon shrieking going, we know who you are. didn't happen until after the voice of God said, this is him. And immediately, The Lord goes out into the wilderness for a showdown, for a test. Now, God, so proud of that moment of his son, the father, voice from heaven, came saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Brothers, I got a big voice for an average-sized guy. Can you imagine the voice of God? Can you imagine? And, and look at this. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. There oh, were people going, Was that thunder? That was thunder, but it made words. Can you imagine it? Man, I love the thunder. This is so awesome, isn't it? Where you feel that, that you can feel the bass of that, the, the sound waves hitting you in the chest. Imagine such a voice, I mean such a sound, just thunder actually forming words. That's what that was. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. (laughs) That's the one going, I didn't need that. You did. My father wanted you to hear that. He's like, I already knew that. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world, and now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. You you know, the best way to paraphrase that is the Lord saying, if I get, if I am impaled, I'll draw all men to me. If I'm lifted up from the earth, if 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 they hang me, if I'm hung, I will draw all men to me. You hear people making songs out of this. Lift Jesus higher, just lift him up for the world to see. He said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw men into me. He's talking about his hanging, his, his execution. This he said, saying, what death he should die, verse 33 says. John goes, This he was talking about what death he should die, verse 34. The people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. Now sayest thou that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? Who is this version of Messiah? They were unfamiliar with him, even though that version had been long prophesied. It was all there. Jesus said unto them, verse 35, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness come upon you. For he that worketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah had said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes. Not understand with their heart, nor, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. What an indictment. Hmm? What an indictment. To actually say, I, I agree, I have seen he is who he claims to be, but I won't stand up for him. you love the praise of men more than the praise of God? The commendation of men. Ah, oh, that's sickening. And yet we're all prone to it. Jesus cried, verse 44, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. And come a light into the world. And whosoever believeth in me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. I have not spoken of myself. But the Father which sent me gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting whatsoever. I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. I challenge you guys, take a journey when you have a moment free with the book of John. And you'll find he says that in every single chapter. Every single chapter you'll find the word sent. Used by the Lord saying, my father sent me. Everything I'm saying, I'm saying because he told me to. Everything I'm doing, I'm doing because he told me to. He sent me. Man was a man on a mission. He was a man under authority. May we then who follow him be men under authority. Men on a mission. Doing someone else's will. Sir Robert Anderson. Brilliant man. That quote from him. The only perfect life that was ever lived was lived by one who did perfectly the will of another. John 13 now before the feast of the Passover John says when when Jesus knew that his hour was come and that he should depart out of this world unto the Father having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end the supper being ended the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and he went to God. John goes, knowing all of this. Look at what he did. John goes, he did, all, knowing all of that, he does this. He riseth from supper. He laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured his water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. And then cometh he to Simon, Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. <laughs> you got to love that guy. Jesus answered, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Oh Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Everything. He's got to one up everybody. That's his mission. That's Peter. The Lord started at one end of this whole horseshoe tricolinium arrangement. And he he gets all the way to the last guy, which is Peter, which means Peter's at the lowest seat. You know Peter well enough to know he didn't pick that himself. No doubt he was sent down there. That seat that Peter was in was the seat of lowest honor. This is the guy who is the greatest in his own mind. He's the winner of the, the perceived winner of the Who's the Greatest Disciple of All Time contest. And he's down there, the last seat, and he watched all these guys get their feet washed, waiting to go, it's a test. None of these losers get it. It's a test. Comes the Lord, he goes, Lord, you think you're going to wash my feet? I don't think so. You will never wash my feet. Is that guy prone to say some outrageous stuff? Is he prone to say, go a little too far? You will never wash my feet. Yes, I'm the greatest. He, no, no doubt in my mind, he looked at all the other guys going, You losers. You couldn't see that this was a test. Only I could read these things. That's right. A test. I passed. You failed. Turn it back to the Lord, and the Lord says, If I, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. To the other extreme. Well, then. My hands and my feet also. Yes, I'm awesome. You people are losers. How <laughs> do none of you get him? What a, what a, I, I'm, man, I am so prone to that, dude. <laughs> I can only imagine the Lord chuckling in verse 10. Jesus saith to him, <laughs> he that's washed, needeth not save to wash his feet. But he's clean every he wet, and you're clean but not all. The Lord said, you're clean, but not all yet. For he knew who should betray him. and Therefore he said, you're not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, know you what I have done unto you? Now listen guys, can I just leave you with this? This this is an amazing thing. I I can't get over it. I marvel at this continually that what he did is so symbolic that he got up from the table. He got up as the host of the feast and took off his garments and laid them aside and put on a towel. He girded himself with a towel and he does a slave job and then he goes back, takes the towel off, puts his clothes back on and takes the place of the host of the feast. This is so incredibly symbolic of what he did leaving heaven. The glory of the incarnation taking us off like a garment, attributes of his divinity, without ever ceasing to be divine, setting those aside, limiting himself to be completely human, to be completely mortal, and then girding himself with with flesh, with with a material body. And when he's done, he clothes himself again. His ascension, his glorification. So the Lord said, you see what I just did? Verse 13, you call me a master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Now, can we pause on that for just a second? You call me a master and Lord, you say, Well, for so I am. I have a personal conviction. I throw it out to you to consider it yourself. We will go out of our way to use title. No, we don't have to, especially us. We're Kelvin Chapel. You know, you can call Rob Rob, call Manny Manny, right? They wouldn't interrupt you. They wouldn't stop you They'd go, no, no, it's Pastor Rob to you. But out of respect. It's a funny thing that sort of happens as respect grows with the passing of time. You find that somebody was your buddy. suddenly becomes your pastor. You find yourself doing that. You know, hey, Pastor Rob. And then we talk to the Lord of the Universe by just his name. He's got a higher title than anyone else could ever have earned. Title that belongs to him. And I note Then on the other side of the Gospels, in the Gospels, he's just Jesus. On the other side of the Gospels, he is Lord and Christ. And the apostles, in the book of Acts, and all the epistles, rarely ever just say Jesus. And when they do, each of those times that they do, those few times, are references to the days of his humiliation before his glorification and ascension. I think it's right that we call him Lord Jesus. I think it's right that we refer to him as Christ. I note, too, that the guys that have the greatest degree of reverence, the books that I read of men who are long gone, all do the same. They all do our Lord this, our Lord says, you know. It's the modern writers, it's the goofy Joel Osteens that go, Jesus this and Jesus that, like he's their homeboy, right? I think it is a subtle indication of a major lack of reverence I, I, the Lord's words on the subject John thirteen thirteen you call me Master and Lord, and you say well, for so I am I guess it's all I need on that subject. so I really find myself saying Jesus anything in fact, I've gone through every song we sing at church and I've made it Lord Jesus, throw in one syllable. if I then your Lord and master verse fourteen I've washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Really, really, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if they do them. <clears throat> all right, so guys, do you know these things? Happy are you? You want to be? Do we not all want to be happy? <laughs> I want to be happy. Well then, do these things. Verse 18, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And now I tell you, before it come, that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am. Brothers, I don't know how much further we're going to get, but I want you to note this 19th verse. I want you to know John fourteen nineteen. The Lord right there in that statement tells us the purpose of Bible prophecy and all prophecy. Why does God give us glimpses of anything? Why does he tell us anything before it's going to happen? Because he needs us to play a part? Certainly not. Why does he tell us anything is going to happen before it happens? So we can prepare? No, not really. We're never really prepared for much. Why does God tell us anything? Why does he who exists outside of time tell us stuff that is to us who are in time, future to us? Why? The answer is right there from the Son of God himself. That we might believe. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. It's hearing the word of God that makes us believe, makes faith happen. And brothers, it is even more specifically the fulfilled prophecies of scripture that give us the greatest reason for faith. It is when God says it and we see it happening that we find our faith is profoundly affected. The Son of God says prophecy is relevant to our faith. He said to his disciples, I'm only telling you this for one reason. I'm telling you so that when it happens, you might believe. See, I maintain that the prophetic aspect of Scripture is our greatest apologetic it is our greatest defense it is our greatest reason for why we believe the greatest reason the guy we're trying to win should believe that we should be able to point out to the world the fulfillment of prophecy in the life of christ and we should be able to point out to the world the fulfillment of prophecy in the world at large This current relationship right now with the very fact that there is a modern state of Israel is proof that the word of God is authored from outside of time. It's never happened before. There's no no reason there should be a modern Israel any more than there should be a modern Philistine. Yet there is. The state of Israel exists. Never in the history of the world has Persia been an enemy of Israel. You know your scriptures, man. Persia was Israel's friend. And right up until 1979, the Islamic takeover, things began to change. And, I, and modern Persia is Iran. And now Israel's arch enemy. Never in the history of the world has Persia been a friend of the Russian, the Scythian, the, the, the violent Russians from the north. Never. Until now. In just the last few years. It's a modern state of Turkey. The whole house of Togarmah in the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 never has, it was Israel's number one business partner in its early formation of the modern state with the Islamic takeover. Now, Israel's arch enemy, becoming Israel's arch enemy. And now, Russia's best friend in just the recent years, just in the Obama years. Russia moved in to the vacancy created by American influence being gone. Unbelievable. You guys, the setup, the stuff that's going on is the very best reason I have for the lost, unbelieving man. That and the the change that happened in my own life, my own testimony, my friend's testimony, the witness of God's work right now. The purpose of prophecy is that you might believe. And I encourage you, brothers, be students of prophecy. I'm not talking about the nerd um, prophecy hack that's obsessed that's not the only thing in Scripture. It's a part of Scripture. You know what I'm talking about? There are guys. You know, you see, you know these people. And it's just all oh, they are. one all the time. But it isn't irrelevant either. It is the reason for faith. And the Lord didn't give us prophecy so we could try to figure out what's going to happen. He didn't give us prophecy so we could build bunkers and store dry goods. He gave us prophecy so that we might believe. And when do we believe? When you see it come to pass. When you see it. I'm going to say it again. His words. John 14, 19. Now I tell you before it comes to pass, and when it comes to pass, you might believe that I am. Verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He's like, did I mention I was sent? verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and he testified. What did that look like? Because they'd not seen that before. He's troubled in spirit. Sometimes you can see it on someone's face, sometimes their countenance, sometimes the physiological things you can, he's confronting things that might have caused a tremble. They saw it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. The disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. And that one, that one will creep you out as a man. There's a lot of stuff about the Gospels that if you don't know the culture, can creep you out. In fact, people creep men out. You know what, guys? The average lost guy on the job site comes to church and gets grossed out when we're singing songs of love to a man. No, I don't think we ought to, you know, help all of that. But the stuff that we can help, we should help. There are stupid expressions, personally. I just think there are stupid expressions. There are modern expressions where people, pastors will say, you know what, guys, you just need to fall in love with Jesus. Don't be saying you need to fall in love. In love, in in our culture, is eros. And eros is not what we're called to. Fall in love with Jesus. You don't find that expression in the book. No, we are commanded to love. And love's not a feeling. We are commanded to love. Can I encourage you to retrain yourself to stop going, you know, I just feel like the Lord's leading me to. No, it's not a feeling. It's not your emotions. Retrain yourself and go, I sense the Lord is leading me to. It's a sense. It's a spiritual thing. It ain't a flutter. Oh man, I just feel like I'm supposed to. I feel, I feel, I feel. Find any of those feelings in the words of the apostles. They're not there. and go. I just feel like the Lord wants us to go to Macedonia. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's you no, know I feel. The Philippian jailer, I'm here because I had a feeling. I don't think so. You had a vision. Paul would say things like, if the apostles would say things like, you know, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. It seems. That's a good thing. That's a good one. Do that one. It seems the Lord is leading me. to. It. it seems. But don't go. I just feel like, I feel like the Lord wants us to stop feeling so much. <laughs> So you'd be creeped out. But, and I think we ought to meet men when we can. Be all things to all men, but that we might by all means save some. I don't think we should make church so so girly. And I mean that. And uh, it, it, it is, a lot of places you go, it is, man. There, there was a book published, a little paperback, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And I had a big, whole, long list. And, you know, some of it was carnal, but some of it was, like, legitimate. I'm like, I get it. I get it. This, um, this thing about one of the disciples who's leaning on Jesus' bosom. You read that, you go, "What?" You picture a couple guys sitting in chairs. If you picture them sitting in chairs, like the Da Vinci portrait, you know, there's a guy. He's like, "There, there, there." What the you? These guys in that culture ate laying on these couches and rugs, and they ate propped up on their left hand. You got a guy right behind you. You want to lean back and have a private conversation? That's how it worked. We don't generally talk with our head on each other's bosoms. Generally, if so, it's it's the only conversation is tap out, dude. Tap because it's, it's over. <laughs> tap. I got this. Quit fighting it. Won't go into a story. I have some. (laughs) Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. So that tells us John is the youngest of the disciples, is in the seat of greatest honor. He's right there next to the host of the feast. He can lay his head back and ask the Lord. And where is Simon? He's in the lowest seat. I guarantee what's not recorded for us here, but knowing the characters. Before that meal began, Peter no doubt has parked himself right there. That's where he was. Because he considers himself God's right hand. The Lord's right hand, right? And at some point, I assure you, the Lord Jesus because it wasn't Peter going, you know, I was just thinking, I'm gonna go trade places with John. It's not Peter, he didn't know anything about. there's no doubt in my mind the Lord Jesus, the Lord would have said, Hey Simon, Peter, why don't you go trade places with John? Would you mind? Look at him. Tell him to come up here. And Peter's going to act like, Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. He's got to go down to John and go, You get up there. What? Just move. Get out of my spot. Now there's John over there in that spot. And there's Peter going, Ask him. He's gesturing. You can you imagine the kind of gestures that are coming from Peter to John? Peter's burning holes with his, with his, his, his eyes. He's like, ask him, ask him. There's probably John going, all right, calm down, all right. So he asked him. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered. Here it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. You ought to get a copy of Alfred Ederson's book. It's not a book to read. It's a resource to consult. It's called um, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he, he'll cast all kinds of light on things like this. But this is how you propose a toast. This is their version of going to my best friend right? This is their version. When you took the piece of bread and you dipped it in the plate, and you make sure to give everybody's attention, and then you fed it to your friend. You put it in his mouth. you were making a statement. It's like Judas opened his mouth to receive the sop, and Satan entered with it. And it didn't change what Judas looked like. His head didn't start rotating. And his eyes didn't turn into vertical reptilian-like pupils. These little slits, he still looked like the truest friend. Look at this. Verse 27, After the, the sop, Satan entered into him. Do you know, think about this now. Satan is at the Last Supper. He's at the Supper. He took possession of a man at the Supper. He entered him. Actually in, invaded Judas. And Jesus said unto him, that thou doest do quickly. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him, for some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had sent unto him by those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in him. God be glorified in him. God shall also glorify him in himself. And you shall straightway glorify him. Little children, for a little while, and I'm with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot go. So now I say unto you, I'm seeking, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you should love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one toward another. Simon Peter said, Lord, he said to him, Lord, whither, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. Thou shalt follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, wilt thou? Lay down thy life for my sake. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Turn the page, brothers, to chapter 18. And I'll wrap it up. Got to skip ahead. Now, most of what we're skipping is the Lord talking about the Holy Spirit, the promised comfort of the helper coming. But just look at this and I'll leave you with this and we'll, we'll break bread together and we'll, we'll meet at our Lord's table. John 18 verse 1 When Jesus had spoken these words he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also which betrayed him knew the place for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, he cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is the thing I want you to look at. Look at the fourth verse. You can see John marveling. All the decades that had followed since he was an eyewitness to this, John expresses his wonder. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said, Whom seek ye? You know the rest of the story. When anybody else would have been running away. You know, I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. I've done things that hurt me real bad, cost me. But I did it ignorantly. I go stumbling in there, kind of stupid, ignoring warnings, not really believing, and then suffering the consequences. But you have too. We've, we've all stepped into stuff that was really painful, but we didn't really appreciate how bad it was going to be. Or we wouldn't have, right? He knew. John said he knew everything. John said... He knew all things that were going to come upon him. He stepped right into it going, bring it, bring it on. He stepped right into it going, who are you looking for? Whom seek ye? He confronted a great multitude, heavily armed and with weapons, knowing what they were going to do to him. He stepped right into it and said, who are you looking for? And ultimately, clarifying, and he puts him through this thing, and then he says I'm the one you want you let them go and they do he put him in a in a humbling position he frightened every one of them just with his words you read the rest of what John says he he went I and, and they all fell down. They all of them. Can you imagine the panic? Can you imagine being in there. Picture for just a second. You're armed. You're ready for trouble. A night maneuver is supposed to be all tactical. You got all overwhelming force, and you're thinking you're good. And then the lights go out. Can you imagine the panic? You're just trying to find your weapon. Trying to find it. Think of the panic. Think of, the, of how that those few seconds of horror. It's like you know you're in the dark, and maybe somebody else has your weapon. Think about all that adrenaline. Get it together. Stand back up and do it again. He said, Who are, you Who are you seeking? Probably a different tone this time. We, we, we see Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they're and they going to go through it again. It's in the book. When they finally all get it together again and they got their lantern. And they're all like and they're all dug in, they're bracing themselves. And he goes, "I'm the one you're looking for. You let them go." And they all go, "No problem." Bye. I go. You come with us. It's in the book. That's the thing I wanted you to look at. Guys, the Son of God, knowing everything. He knew. Think about this. He created. He designed the entire human nervous system that he would afflict. He placed every nerve in the back that he would allow to be shredded. He knows of the agony that'll be the result of spikes springing the bone and cutting right through the tendons to impale him to a tree. He knows of the agony of being stretched out in such a position you can't exhale, you can't take a deep breath and slowly suffocate while you bleed out. He knows all of it. But even worse than that, what did he despise? What was it that made the cross the horror? Hebrews chapter 12, once again, it was that despising the shame. It wasn't the pain, it was the shame. Is that he would take on the shame of Ken Graves. Ramakoi and all the Ramakois and the whole history of the world and all their stinking deeds. Take it upon himself. Become the scapegoat. Not just merely symbolically a transfer, but an actual transfer. That every symbolic transfer enacted by the priest in, in fulfillment of the law was just a rehearsal. Something was actually going to happen, and it did happen. You stepped right into it. This is someone worth following.